Greetings, friends. Let us prepare to listen as we study God's Word in our apprenticeship to Jesus. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate His Word as we begin our series, The Sermon on the Mount. Now, from Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 25, we are invited into the Jesus Gymnasium where we train and discipline in order to actually live out life in the name of Jesus. As you've probably noticed, we are starting a new series this morning, a series through what is probably the most famous sermon in all of Scripture and definitely the most famous teaching of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. Now, some consider this sermon the epitome of the teachings of Jesus and therefore the essence of Christianity. This sermon is Jesus' answer to the universal philosophical and religious quest and question, how can a person truly be happy? Or what is the truly good life? Now, this is a question that humans have been wondering at since the dawn of time, and we're still captivated by today. Uh, In a sense, humanity still hasn't found what it's looking for. The quest goes on. Uh, I remember back in 2017 reading an article from the New York Times talking about this very question, and it stated that approximately 12,000 Yale students uh, signed up that year for a new psychology course, and it made it actually the most popular course in all of the school's history. You know what the subject was? Happiness. That's fascinating, right? I mean, we're talking Yale students, and maybe that's just me. Like, man, you go to Yale, oh my gosh, like you must be, you know, have four brains, you know, just, but like, we're talking about like, this is one of those quests or ideals of humanity that really touches everybody. I mean, you could ask a little child, what's the meaning of life? And they would probably say, to be happy. And you could ask a sage, and say, the meaning of life is to be happy. It's fascinating to me that it's simple sometimes almost simplistic, and yet it's universal. For thousands of years, humans have wrestled with this question of the meaning of life and its fulfillment. And it would seem that we're no further on in our conclusions, nor better off than the ancients. In fact, there's quite significant data that shows that we are worse off in terms of our own personal satisfaction, meaning, fulfillment, uh, by our low rates of mental health, even in this country. I mean, it's fascinating. We are more depressed, dissatisfied, and disillusioned than generations of people who experience far less than we do in terms of convenience, comfort, uh, that comes through technological advancement. And this isn't just the case with secular, non-religious people. It's actually true of religious people, Christian people. Now, the term happiness really has two different meanings. And often we talk about happiness, what we actually mean is feeling good, right? We Pleasure, gratification, going to Disneyland, right? I mean, that's like, I'm happy. That's the happiest place on earth, right? Like, that's the way we refer to it. But anyone who pursues this definition of happiness, looking for it to deeply satisfy, will find almost immediately 
that it is fleeting and actually quite destructive to one's mental health and overall well-being. Just spend three days at Disneyland. You know exactly what I'm talking about, right? Uh, But there is a conspiracy afoot. And that that is that there is a different sort of happiness out there. A true, deeper happiness that exists somewhere in the world. And what I mean by that is a rich, full, and meaning-filled life still waiting to be lived. Now, some still believe that. I call it a conspiracy. They're still pursuing it. It's somewhere out there. Some, even in this room, have given up on that idea. You've become more jaded and pessimistic. Well, I want to say that the sort of happiness, that good life that I was just describing, this is the subject matter of Jesus' sermon. So if you're someone who still holds out hope that there really is a way to live a full, deep, satisfying life, whether you're a Christian or not, this sermon is for you. I would also say, though, if you're someone who feels like you've heard it all, you've experienced it all, I would ask you to reconsider afresh the teachings of Jesus the Master, the happiest, most joy-filled, satisfied human who ever lived, that you would reconsider his way of life. Though I warn you that Jesus' version of happiness or the good life will radically contradict and denounce many of the rights, the freedoms, vices, and virtues of what our current culture and really all cultures have seen as a definition of the good life. But before we object to that, I would ask us to honestly consider how well is that going up till now? Say, no, no, I'm good. My version, what I'm doing, the things that I'm pursuing, the things that I value, the goals of my life, could you say, they are producing the good life. You're satisfied. You are flourishing. And if not, are you open to hearing something that will contradict all your good sense about your meaning, purpose, freedom, and rights, and consider a vision for human flourishing that is truly otherworldly? Because that's what this sermon actually is. Now, one of the reasons why I think mental health, satisfaction among God's people, and the world really isn't all that different, I honestly think is tied back to the way that we approach this sermon and often the way that we approach all of Scripture. And so I want to talk a little bit about how we approach that and how I think the church has made missteps in the past, and I want to recommend a different way of approaching this sermon. So how should we approach this sermon? Historically, the church has wrestled with what to do with this sermon. I mean, there are some that have believed that what Jesus teaches here is a description of what some call the millennial reign, the earthly reign of Christ for a thousand years. And so that will only come about at the end of time. Therefore, this is a vision to anticipate. But there's no application 
You'll just be frustrated if you try to do this or try to insist on this coming about in your life, in your community, in your lifetime. So it really has no real demand over our lives. Others have seen the Sermon on the Mount as a second and even greater law of Moses, where Jesus lifts the standard of righteousness so high that every attempt to obey will be discarded, and the result will be that those who attempt will fall and put their trust in Jesus, the only one who can fulfill its exceedingly high ideal of holiness. And there are other views and interpretations as well that we just don't have time to get into this morning. But I'd like to quote from Pincus Lapide, who wrote this, living back in the 19, I think, 40s, penned this. The history of the impact of the Sermon on the Mount can largely be described in terms of an attempt to domesticate everything in it that is shocking, demanding and uncompromising, and render it harmless. And this is what I've seen many times in the commentaries I've read and the pastors that I've listened to in the way that I think the church has approached this. Very well-meaning people have turned the world's greatest sermon from one of instruction and invitation into indictment. I think this is due in part because we often relegate every biblical story and command to a law versus grace paradigm. And what I mean by that is that anything that sniffs of any kind of rule keeping or doing or trying, we call foul. No, no, no. That is works. That is law. That is legalism. You are trying to earn your salvation. We take Jesus' radical teaching and say, he must be using hyperbole. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Nobody could ever actually be that good. And then doesn't Paul tell us that we will always wrestle with the life in the spirit and our own, you know, mortal bodies and that are still, you know, under sin. And won't this just like be this wrestling match basically until Jesus comes? So we conclude that Jesus's point must be to raise the bar so high that we forsake our own working and any doing and just trust in him, not trying, but just believing. But by doing this, we actually declaw the sermon. We undermine its high demands and we remove any effort on our part to follow or practice the way of Jesus. And so people who actually claim to take Jesus very seriously and very literally aren't doing either of those things. Do we really think Jesus would have wasted his time with this sermon if the point was to not even keep it, practice it. Or that Matthew and Luke would have taken meticulous time to record this sermon for us if the point was not to do anything except just believe. And what I mean by that, just believe, is just this mental assent. I believe in Jesus. But that doesn't have any bearing upon the way I actually live my life, my own character and the transformation of my character. 
If that's the point, why record the sermon at all? Author and professor Lee Camp writing, he writes about radical discipleship in his book, Mere Discipleship. He says this, following a Jesus who commands love of enemies or sharing of one's provisions or practicing forgiveness is looked upon as far out. It's an extreme viewpoint with little to offer the real world. Such radical claims are regarded as idealistic, unrelated to the pragmatic concerns of those who are trying to make a difference in the world. Just enter in, you know, anyone who slaps you on the face, turn to them the other cheek. Think about these kind of demands that Jesus gives upon us, right? Enter that into what he's saying here. Thus, we fashion a religion that suits this model. We go to church, are offered pious sentiment to warm our hearts, theological warm fuzzies intended to assure us of our eternal reward or a life filled with meaning with little word of the kingdom of God. So he calls this radical discipleship, but he says, he goes on to say, etymologically, though, the word radical simply means to the root. And it is in this sense that the Christian faith is radical. It demands thorough going to the root transformation, thorough going to the root conversion of every realm of human endeavor. Whether in personal relations, economics, politics, in homes, culture, and social order, the gospel demands radical discipleship. Now, sadly, I believe that so many Christians are missing out on this thoroughgoing to the root transformation, this thoroughgoing conversion that Jesus came to bring, and therefore flourishing the good life that Jesus offers because they have been given a theology that says, just let go and let God. They've been given a silver bullet theology. If you just do this thing, if this thing happens in your life, oh, you'll never be the same. And some of you, we hear testimonies like this, right? Those who live like hell, gave to life, their lives to Jesus in one moment in time, and then they've miraculously never struggled again. I'm like, well, good for you. Like, what about the rest of us? What's wrong with me? Anybody else come to those conclusions ever? Can I just say, the gospel, the good news of God's grace offered to us in and through the life, the death, the resurrection, and the eternal reign of Jesus over all things is opposed to your earning. You cannot earn it, but it is not opposed to your effort. Dallas Willard, in his book, The Great Omission, he says this, grace is not opposed to effort, it is opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. Now, I believe that we should approach this sermon both seriously and literally. I actually believe the Sermon on the Mount is to be taken very seriously. Now, of course, recognizing how people have always used metaphor and descriptive language in human communication, right? So that when Jesus is talking about a log being in your eye, he is using metaphor. And when Jesus is talking about cutting off your hand, yes, he is using hyperbole, right? 
And humans have talked this way since the dawn of time. We are not supposed to take what is metaphor and what is hyperbole literally. But we are to take this sermon very seriously, very literally in the sense of it is to be followed. It is to be practiced. It is to be implemented and lived out. But I need to say this. If we are thinking that this sermon is like the bar that Jesus sets for us, and we just roll our sleeves up and Jesus, you say, Jesus, you say jump, I say how high, right? Like that's what this is. We will quickly find its requirements are absolutely undoable, absolutely insurmountable. And in fact, it does become an ideal that no human being could possibly live up to. But this is never meant to be the way the sermon was taken on its own, ripped from the hands of the one who said it, the one who taught and incarnated these values. It cannot be done as an attempt to live out the kingdom without the king. This sermon must be taken as an invitation to follow the king, King Jesus. As student to master, as disciple to rabbi, That's how we must approach this sermon. Now, I think one of the reasons why historically the church has grappled with this is, and we do this with a lot of biblical texts, right? We just take it and we rip it out of its context. And we just begin with, now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, so on and so forth. But there's a whole lot of context that actually comes before Jesus preaches this sermon. And that's why I actually had us read Matthew 4, 12 through whatever we read through. Um, so, yeah, you like that? So Matthew four seventeen is where I want to pick up this morning. And I just want to highlight a few things that I think will help us properly approach this sermon. So Matthew four seventeen, you can read along with me. It says this, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, skip with me down to verse 23. It says, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, listen again, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Now, news about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed all of them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. So I think before we get into the sermon, what do we need to see? That when Jesus first comes on the scene, he is preaching the good news. Okay, little test here. Church, what is the good news? This never works. I don't know why I keep trying it. Okay. The good news in evangelicalism is... Christ died for our sins. Do you know what the good news is actually according to the Bible? It comes from Isaiah chapter 52. It's this beautiful passage. This is the one that precedes the passages about the suffering servant, one who will take our sins. But this is what it says. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the one who brings good news, who says to Zion or the people of God, what does it say? 
Our God is king. This is actually the good news of the Bible. That God, the one who created heaven and earth, has actually re-entered time and space, is here on earth to bring about his kingdom, to restore and to renew all things, to make all things new. There's this vision, uh, anytime anybody is ushered into the presence of God through a vision in scripture, what we see is these angelic beings crying out this vision to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with what? His glory. See, that's the vision. That's the message. God is king, and now the whole earth is God's glorious kingdom, his dwelling place. That's where everything is headed. This is the good news that Jesus was declaring. Wouldn't it have been weird if Jesus showed up on the scene and says, Messiah has died for your sins? I was like, what? See, the details that we often talk about that Christ did die for our sins. He has made a way for us to be a part of the kingdom of God because God's kingdom has come. It's here. The question is, how do broken, sinful, tainted, backwards, upside down, fallen people join God's kingdom? Because Messiah has made a way. Through his own perfect life, he has made a way for us to be part of the kingdom of God. He has made us who are foreigners, sons and daughters. He has made us who were rebels and sinners, citizens of his kingdom. So this is the good news. And this is what Jesus shows up on the scene preaching. The kingdom of heaven is here. But he doesn't just proclaim it. You guys, he demonstrates it. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, it says that he heals everyone who is brought to him. So it's not just, oh, the kingdom of heaven is here, but every single person that Jesus touches is restored. They're made whole. They're made right. Something we must understand is that the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is actually a huge biblical idea woven throughout scripture. And so to proclaim that the kingdom of God was here was a hugely packed statement. Because for the Jew, the kingdom of God referred to God's final eternal reign over his creation. Where God rules, his kingdom is present. And so it meant that the earth and the heavens would be fully restored. It meant a healed material creation and absolute wholeness and well-being. We're talking, you know, physically restored spiritually restored, socially restored, economically restored. So God's right way, his kingdom way, his righteousness, his justice, it would permeate all of the cosmos. That's the vision of the kingdom of God. It's also bound up with the Old Testament concept of peace or shalom. Now, shalom is actually inextricably tied to justice and righteousness, right? To ideas about poverty and oppression, misery and sin and all of its various forms being brought to an end and the ushering in of flourishing abundance and blessing in its place. We've talked about this before, but that's why so many of the miracles that Jesus does are about abundance. 150 gallons of wine for one single wedding overflowing baskets of leftovers because there is plenty in the kingdom of God. There is no poor. There is no poverty. There is no oppression. 
This is the kingdom that Jesus is proclaiming. This is the kingdom that he is demonstrating. But there's more to the message even than that. Because Jesus' message is not just the kingdom is here, but it is repent for the kingdom is here. Now, again, evangelicals, we have made the word repent into a harsh and hard word. If I would have you know, put out my notes this week and said, you know, my message is entitled repentance, I wonder how many would have shown up today, right? It's often what we actually expect, harsh, heavy teaching, reminding us of how wicked and sinful and bad we are. That's not actually what this word means. And yes, some of us are very sinful, very twisted. We're not denying any of that. But what this word actually means is actually turn around. That's all it means. So depending on what you're doing and what you need to turn from, yeah, that might apply. But Jesus is really saying this, the kingdom is here, turn around or turn to me. Reconsider. In essence, Jesus is saying this, drop what you're doing. Turn from whatever you are preoccupied with, whatever you think life is really about, think again. Give me and this announcement your full attention and your full consideration. Now, I didn't say this in first gathering, but I just want to take a moment to talk about this because there's a lot of confusion in our day about what is true and faithful Christianity and how should we be living that out. And we've got all these ideas about how, you know, politically where we should be, you know, organizationally, how we should organize and, you know, what the church should be concerned about. And it's these different causes within culture. Let me just say this. In Jesus's day, they had all sorts of ideas about this as well, right? You ever heard of the zealots? These were religious Jewish radicals that believed that through violence, they would take back the kingdom of God. They were based off of Judas Maccabee. And so they would go in the Temple Mount. The word zealot means dagger man. They had these daggers and they would stab Roman soldiers right in the back. That's what they did. And they believed that this is how the kingdom of God would be ushered in. There's the Sadducees. They are the compromised religious leaders who get into bed with the Romans. And they think it is through co-opting power that they will actually be able to hold on to the kingdom of God. But it's not just them. There's also the Pharisees. They're super high, extra holy people. And they believe by keeping Levitical righteousness for the priest that they will end the exile and Messiah will come. There's also the Essenes who just peace out, go to the desert and wait for the kingdom of God to come or the judgment to come. So my point is there are all these different political parties. And guess what? Jesus has his own politic. And it's none of those it's radically different. And it actually confronts all of those ideas because it's a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It is a kingdom that is coming from outside of this world and it is coming into being here, transforming all things. And Jesus is inviting us, church, into that kingdom way of life. That's what this sermon is about. So he's inviting us, sit down, tune in, listen up, and receive the vision of the kingdom of God. So I think that that's one reason why this sermon is so important for us today, because there are all these ideas about what is faithful Christianity or what is radical to the root Christianity. You know what we're going to do? We're going to go right to the source. We're going to go to the Jesus Manifesto, and we're going to learn the way of the master so that we can faithfully live out God's kingdom in our time and our generation. 
We're going to recalibrate ourselves to the way of Jesus. That's what this sermon is really about. So once we clearly see that these beatitudes, this flourishing way of being, these kingdom characteristics, the kingdom politics, are values, characteristics that we foster, that we practice as God's people, we'll clearly see the sermon is not rules that get us into the kingdom. God invites us into his kingdom because of his king who has made a way possible for us. We'll see that this sermon is not unobtainable standards to get us to see that we can't possibly keep it so we should stop trying. That is nonsensical and stupid. We will also see that this sermon is not rules of how we must behave if we are to stay in the kingdom of God. It is so much deeper than that. And we will see that the sermon is not just a vision of what life will be like one day when God physically reigns on earth, but it is an invitation to live in the kingdom of God now. That's what this sermon is. I believe that what Jesus is saying is this. Now that I am here, God's new world is coming into being. And once we realize that, we'll see that these are the habits of heart which anticipate the new world here and now. These are qualities, uh, or these qualities, purity of heart, mercy, and so on. These are not things that you have to do to earn a reward or a payment that you give to God, nor are they merely the rules of conduct now that you become a Christian, but they are signs of life, the life of the kingdom of the heavens. They are the life that Jesus came to bring. Jehoiachim Jeremiah, this is one of my favorite quotes, I think, about this Sermon on the Mount. And it's really helped me in my own approach and kind of like this lens through which I see, read, study, and apply the sermon. This is what he says about the Sermon on the Mount. What Jesus teaches in the sayings collected in the Sermon on the Mount is not a complete regulation of the life of the disciples, and it's not intended to be. Rather, what is taught here is Symptoms, signs, examples of what it means when the kingdom of God breaks into the world which is still under sin, death, and the devil. You yourselves should be signs of the coming kingdom of God, signs that something has already happened. So let's be clear, the sermon isn't Jesus giving you principles to go and make yourself happy. This is not Jesus' sage wisdom for a DIY life, uh, to be a self-made man or woman. But it reminds me of this quote by C.S. Lewis where he said, our faith is not a matter of hearing what Christ said so long ago and trying to carry it out. Rather, the real son of God is at your side. Or let me put it this way, the king is here. And the opportunity to live under his reign, his kingdom, is available to us. He's not far off. He's present as guide, as 
teacher, as Lord, as Savior, to work his way of life into us. Lewis goes on, the real Son of God is at your side. He is beginning to turn you into the same kind of thing as himself. He is beginning, so to speak, to inject his kind of life and thought or his zoe into you. Beginning to turn the tin soldier into a live person. The part of you that doesn't like it is the part that is still tin. I believe that what the essence of the sermon is meant to do is exactly that, to permeate our lives with his life. That the kingdom of the heavens would, as we often pray, be done on earth. That it would be done in my life, that God's kingdom would come, that his will would be done. This sermon is where we work that into ourselves. See, because the commands of the New Testament, whether here in the Sermon on the Mount or Paul or you know, the Apostle John or whoever it might be, they're not so much telling us to do something. And I think we get that wrong so often. To me, it just feels like a wagging finger. Rather, they're inviting us to become something, to become what God created us to be, what Jesus redeemed us to be, which is those who reflect the image of our Father in heaven. We're invited to become fully human, reflecting the image of our Father in heaven who is gracious to all, as Jesus will teach us who causes the rain to fall and the sun to shine on both those who are just and even those who are unjust. He's calling us to be those who love their enemies, those who would actually bless those who curse them and not just like, oh wait, what am I supposed to do again? Like, oh, bless you. But actually from the depths of my being, when I speak in response to someone who has just cursed me, what comes out is blessing? How could that ever happen? Or those who go the second mile, who go above and beyond even what they're required to do by law. Those who tell the truth or who are faithful in all of their commitments because that's the kind of people they are or rather that's the kind of people that they have become through cultivating this life of the kingdom of the heavens. That's what this is. So in case anybody right now is like, this sounds like works. This sounds like you're saying, we do all of this work, and what about the cross? What about salvation? Okay, just listen one more time, just in case. The king is here in the context of the sermon. The kingdom is here because of the king. But now let's bring that into our context. We believe that the king is here, don't we? Not just ruling and reigning in our hearts by the power of his spirit, but we believe that Jesus is Lord over this community, don't we? And we believe that that means that we follow Jesus, that we practice his way of being in the way that we relate to one another. So we come under Jesus' law, his way of being, his politic, 
whatever term you want to use, to learn its way of being in order to live it out in a world that is still in darkness and longing for true life. This is that community project that the New Testament writers often talk about. Remember what Peter says, when you're persecuted, when you're spoken evil against, they will see your good deeds and they'll glorify your Father in heaven. Or Peter puts it particularly about anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. And oftentimes we make that into a personal thing. What he actually means is the way that the world sees that we forgive one another, the way that we care for one another, how we deal with shortcomings, sin, hypocrisy, how we live out this Jesus project together, that is what the world will see and say, you people live by a different way. Yes, exactly, the kingdom way, the kingdom politic. Now, as we wrap this up, as they say wrap this up, I think I have like four more pages of notes, but it feels like it's moving, you know, if I say that. Uh, and then I just lost my place, great. Okay, the Sermon on the Mount is a huge vision. Like anybody that reads this from beginning to end will be just like the people who first heard it, right? They were just blown away. What is this? It's high in its standard of character. Its beauty is really so far beyond what is natural to us. And that is because God's plan for humanity is big and it's beautiful, it's high, and it's holy. It's not just plans to make you happy or successful in the fleeting way that our culture often pursues it. No, God has something so much bigger, so much greater for us. He wants to make us whole. He wants to restore us. He wants to make us perfect. He wants to make us wise. In fact, he wants to mold us so much in his image that one day we can rule and reign with him over his kingdom. There's one theologian who I really admire and I read a lot of his stuff and he says that everything in this life is basically an internship for the kingdom of God. It's training. It's preparation, it's annealment for the thing that God has next for us. And the scriptures say this again and again. God wants to do this deep, restorative work of making us whole, preparing us to rule and reign with him, preparing us to shine like the stars forever and ever, to share in his glory, to be conformed to the image of his son. So when we read this sermon, guess what? We're gonna find... Man, that each of us are convicted, right? That we are not what we should be. We're not what we could be. We're not what God intends us to be. But that isn't meant to get us to throw in the towel. 
There's not a person in this room who is hidden from that indictment. Not one of us are what we should be, could be, or will be, but I do believe that this sermon is to be taken as an invitation from Jesus to let him make us into what he intends us to be, a flourishing humanity. You know, one of the reasons why I'm so excited to teach this passage portion of scripture is because we just spent the last year and a half through the Gospel of John. And the Gospel of John is just like, wow. Like, to me, I think about the Gospel of John, it's like this incredible tapestry. It's like, you know, the Sistine Chapel. Like, you look at this thing, and you're just like, like, you can't even take the whole thing in. It's just so glorious and majestic. It's overwhelming. Life in the name of Jesus, could it be? And I think that John, one part of John's intention is just to get us to wonder, to desire that there might really be life in the name of Jesus. But if I can contrast the Sermon on the Mount with that, the Sermon on the Mount is like workout coach Jesus. Head mic on, here we go, right? We're in there, we're on the treads, we're like, you know, we're, on the, we're doing the thing, you know, you're getting your heart rate up so high you think you're gonna die, I couldn't possibly do this, and guess what? You're gonna do it again tomorrow and the next day, and the next day, and the next day. We are going to practice this, discipline ourselves into the way of Jesus so that one day, it's almost like we wake up and realize, whoa, I've changed. I've grown some spiritual muscles. I know that that's like a stupid metaphor. But this is how all character works. You see the goal. The goal is likeness of Jesus Christ. We recognize that there are steps, practices, habits, things that we do, disciplines that we take on that help us towards that goal. And we practice them and practice them and practice them and practice them so that we actually, when we are cursed, what comes out is what? Blessing. So that when we are persecuted, we remember that we have an exceedingly great reward and an identity with the prophets who have gone before us. So that when the powerful and the strong reach out their hand to take what they believe is rightfully theirs, we say, we will dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness, for the Lord will give the earth to the meek. This is what comes out of us because that's actually what's in us. It's the character that we have cultivated by the power of God's spirit, by the community of God's people all working together cultivating this life of Jesus, this life of the kingdom of the heavens. Now, you guys, this sermon is actually very personal to me because of just my own journey in faith. You know, I grew up in a Christian home and uh, I was taught the Bible from an early age. And what I'm about to share, I, I don't blame my parents for this. Like, oh, you know, they were super legalistic. And if they only had done this, or I, and I don't blame my church uh, that I grew up in. I actually had incredible church experiences as a kid. And I had terrible experiences as a kid. I had a normal human life, I guess, in some ways, right? <laughs> Good and bad. So all that to say, I grew up in a Christian home, and I know the ideal. Like, I want to follow Jesus. And in my head, Jesus is Lord, and I want to honor him, and I want to serve him. And my gosh, I've got this like, major disconnect between my head and my heart. And I struggle with sin. Like, not just actions, but my own heart towards people, very cynical, very judgmental. 
And this just continues and continues, you know. And so at some point in time, it's like, okay, I'm really going to get real with Jesus. And so I start reading my Bible more, and I attend church and find community. I confess my sins. I pray. I do all these things. But really what I'm looking for is a silver bullet. Because I can't, like, I'm not experiencing any change. And so, right, I hear pastors preach, and do you want to follow Jesus? I'm like, yes, I want to follow Jesus. That's me. And so, you know, I raise my hand. I give my life to Jesus again. Guess what happens? Nothing. So I think, wow, something must be uniquely wrong with me. It works for everybody else. I hear testimonies constantly of people that just gave their lives to Jesus, and voila, holy. And so I continue in this, and I, you know, like, okay, maybe I need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That was emphasized at that time as a kid that this is a specific thing that you must ask for or you don't get it. You don't get God's Holy Spirit unless you ask for it. Wow. And so, okay, I want the Spirit. Guess what happens? Nothing. Okay, I'm told maybe I just need the gift of tongues. The gift of tongues will solve my sin problem. What? Where do you read that? Like in Corinthians, you read the exact opposite of all of this, right? The baptism of the Holy Spirit will cure all sins. It's like, absolutely not. So what happens, so basically, you guys, this is what I'm trying to say here. In following Jesus, there are no silver bullets. But the Son of God is in you. And his life, his offer of life is available to you. But there is cooperation involved. There is coming under these disciplines, these practices, the way of Jesus. No pill will do for us what God calls us to do with him. And in my life, it wasn't until I began to practice the way of Jesus. It's like that daily exercise, daily discipline. Yes, reading, studying, praying, confessing sin, fellowship with other believers, but also this handing over my anger for God's own power and authority. Like, okay, God, you're in control, not me. It had to do with me beginning to exchange these things with God, what I call put off and put on. Um, Paul calls it this. Peter calls it this, right? We're putting off our old habits and way of doing things, and we're taking on Jesus's habits and way of doing things. And guess what? My character began to change. And people began to notice that my character began to change because I was, for the first time in my life, experiencing thoroughgoing transformation, thoroughgoing conversion. And you know what? My deep conviction is that this is probably true for most Christians. We're promised this, man, just give your life to Jesus. Your life will never be the same. And we have this like, kind of you know, high that we experience in the beginning but as many of us know, that runs out. Anybody that's married and had this promise of how incredible and life-fulfilling marriage was going to be soon finds out that, yes, and marriage is very hard. And it confronts all of your selfishness. Following Jesus is exactly the same. See, the spiritual disciplines of Jesus contained in the Sermon on the Mount 
are physical practices, disciplines, or habits that we form that help us take the teachings of Jesus, our master, our teacher, our Lord, from our heads to our hearts and physical bodies. And their aim is a whole person transformation to Christ-likeness through alignment with the way of Jesus. That's what this sermon is about. You're entering the Jesus gymnasium or the Jesus dojo. And so church, I am excited to see what God will do in us as individuals, but in us collectively as we submit ourselves to the way of Jesus, the way of the kingdom. And so I guess all I'm asking this morning after this long intro is this. Will you open yourself to Jesus' invitation to his kingdom and his vision for flourishing? Will you, whether you're hearing it for the first time or it's a call you've heard long ago, Will you turn from whatever you are preoccupied with and give your full attention? Will you turn around because the kingdom of the heaven is here? Will you do that? Will you come and sit at the feet of Jesus and make himself, make yourself his disciple? In closing, for real this time, Dallas Willard says this in his book, The Divine Conspiracy. Jesus came among us to show and teach the life for which we were made. He came very gently, opened access to the governance of God with him, and set afoot a conspiracy of freedom and truth among human beings. Having overcome death, he reigns among us. The Son of God is at your side. By relying on his word and presence, we are enabled to reintegrate the little realm that makes up our life into the infinite rule of God. And that is the eternal kind of life. Caught up in his active rule, our deeds become an element in God's eternal history. They are what God and we do together, making us part of his life and him a part of ours. So, as we close this morning in a time of worship and just responding to God's word, you know, I entitled this message A Kingdom Invitation. And so that's it. I think the table of the Lord is here. And what we mean by that is the presence of Jesus is here in these symbols of broken bread and wine. Jesus himself is here asking, will you let me be master and teacher Will you receive my invitation? And so I imagine just for all of us, there's some aspect in which we need to respond to Jesus. We need to have this conversation with him about whether or not we are going to be his disciples and take up his invitation to practice his way of being. So let's do that together, church. Let's come to the table, Lord. Let's meet with Jesus ourselves personally. Let's pour out our hearts to him. The Son of God is at your side.